Good morning. My name is Pastor John. I'm the associate pastor here at East Shore. I'm so glad you've joined us in worship this morning. Those of you who were here last Sunday, I hope you enjoyed that last week. We celebrated our 50th anniversary. We had a special luncheon. We were celebrating what God has done through the ministry of East Shore Baptist Church over the past 50 years. And if you were here in the sanctuary, you experienced a unique moment of God's loving care for our church. Because we were celebrating our 50th anniversary, we had a guest speaker in the sanctuary for our message. And as I was introducing him, I just happened, spur of the moment, to mention that this week, today, I was continuing our study through the book of Joshua, moving forward through the book of Joshua, and I was going to talk about Joshua's chapters 3 and 4. And our speaker did not know that because the message he prepared for last week was on Joshua chapter 3. <laughs> but you know what? That, that's, that's okay. Because these chapters we're looking at, chapters 3 and 4, describe what may be the most important event in the entire book of Joshua. In fact, if you, it's kind of a little hard to see, but the background that we've been using for the PowerPoint for this whole series is of this crossing of the Jordan River that we'll talk about today. And if a, the Bible can tell a story uh, multiple times, as it will in this passage, the story's told in chapter 3, and then a lot of it is repeated in chapter 4. So if the Bible can tell the story twice, well, maybe we can hear a message about it twice in a row. But don't worry about it. If you're like, oh boy, here we go again. No. Last week, he focused a lot on chapter 3. This week, I'm going to spend most of my time in chapter 4. And my prayer for us is that together, these messages on this one incredible event will help us as we move forward into what God has for us next. As we move forward as a church and as individuals, we're going to see God work. And when that happens, we must remember what he has done and tell others about our gracious and loving Lord. So if you're not there already, please turn your Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapters 3 and 4. If you'd like to use that red Bible in the seat back in front of you, you should find it on pages 117 and then 118. And if you are able, I'd ask you to please stand as I'm going to read portions of our passage today. I'm not going to read both chapters. I'm just going to read a little bit from chapter 4. So Joshua chapter 4. I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'll read a little bit, and then I'll skip to a bit later in the chapter. So Joshua 4, starting verse 1, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly. Bring them over with you, lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan. Take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel that this may be a sign among you. When your children ask you in the time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. 
And the people of Israel did just as Joshua commanded and took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to the place where they lodged and laid them down there. And Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. For the priest bearing the ark stood in the midst of the Jordan until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. I'm jumping down to verse 18, verse 18. And when the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on the dry ground, the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed all its banks as before. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month. They encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time in your word this morning. Lord, we really do need you. And we need you right now. We need your presence to be made known. We need you to be the one we see as we look at this passage from your word. So God, I pray that I would decrease so that you would increase and we would see you clearly through your word. God, we ask that when you work, you will lead us to remember. And may that remembering cause us to tell others about what you have done for us. Most of all, God, may we tell them about the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. So let's think a little bit about where we are in Scripture. And we are in the book of Joshua, a book about God fulfilling his promise to give a land to his people. They spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt. Then God raised up a man named Moses who led them to freedom. They escaped Egypt by crossing the Red Sea. God parted the waters of the Red Sea so they could cross through. After that, they spent another 40 years wandering around in the wilderness. And now there's a new generation of God's people. They're camped on the eastern shore of the Jordan River. This man Joshua has been commissioned, made the new leader of God's people. God has promised to be with him. God has told him to be strong and courageous. Joshua has sent spies over the river. They've spied out the land, particularly the city of Jericho. And while they were there, they learned that the people of the land are afraid. They fear the people of Israel. They're afraid of the power of their God. Some of those people, like a woman named Rahab we met, 
she and her family, they want to join God's people. They see that the Israelites worship the one true God. And this news encourages the Israelites. They are ready to move forward into the promised land. So what I'm going to do first is I'm going to review what happens in chapter 3. I'm not going to read everything in it, but I'm going to talk about what happens in it and talk about what it looks like when God works. When God works. This chapter is going to describe the basics of what is happening on this fateful day. We're told that Joshua woke up early. He's probably excited to move his people into their new promised home. He and the Israelites leave their camp at Shittim or Acacia Grove, and they head toward the river. Now, when they got to the river, what they saw must have been an incredibly intimidating sight. We're told in this chapter that the river is at flood stage this time of year. It could have possibly, at some places, maybe been close to a mile long. And it was probably more than 10 feet deep in many spots. And since it was flooded water, it was probably moving very quickly. A wide river, fast moving. Now, it wouldn't be impossible for strong swimmers to make their way across the river. But the Israelites, they have their whole families with them. They have the very young infants, the very old They also have all of their belongings, all their animals, their food, their supplies, their weapons. There was no way for all of them and all of that to make it across a flooded river. If God did not lead them, they truly could not move forward. But this obstacle is just going to serve to make God's work all the more glorious. The river's flooded. The people of the land would not expect an attack at this time. If the Israelites made it across, their enemies would have to acknowledge the power of the Israelites' God. And think about the other side. We're talking about a new generation of Israelites. They may have heard how God led their parents through the Red Sea, but only Joshua and his friend Caleb actually saw that. The rest of them hadn't seen it. They'd heard about it. But they would have to learn firsthand what God could do for them, too. In chapter 3, Joshua passes some instructions on to the people. He tells them they're to follow the movement of the Ark of the Covenant. That was a, a golden box that represented God's presence among the people. We're told that since God is holy, they're to keep their distance. Uh, some translations have about 2,000 cubits. That's about half a mile away from the Ark. Now, you'll notice anytime anybody draws a picture of it, the people are not half a mile away, because that doesn't really make a good picture if you have something half a mile away. But that is what it would have actually looked like. Now, if that seems a little excessive, why were they so far away from this Ark? Well, part of the reason may have been a very practical one. If the Ark's that far away, all the people can see it as they walk by it. When the Ark then went into the river, the water stopped flowing from the north. The Jordan River flows from north to south, and it was cut off. It stopped flowing. And so God was the one doing this. But if you were a person walking and you looked toward the north, you would see the ark, and you'd see the water stopped up behind it. It would look like the ark was stopping the water. It would remind you that's God's presence. God is the one who is doing it. And so the people crossed south of the ark, and they could see God's power at work. But before they did this, we're told in chapter 3, verse 5, Joshua tells the people to consecrate themselves, to set themselves apart from sin and uncleanness for what is about to happen. 
This is a spiritual act. It probably involves some ritual washing, preparation of their hearts and minds to see God at work. This is important because the Israelites were about to begin a military conquest, but this action, crossing the Jordan River, it was a spiritual act. It wasn't their military strength, wasn't the number of soldiers they had, wasn't their might or strength that got them across this river. It was the strength of their God that brought them across. So we, those of us who are God's people today, we can follow their example by putting into practice words we see in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, here's what we do. We consecrate ourselves. We let us lay aside every weight. We lay aside every sin which clings to us so closely. We run with endurance the race that is set before us. And how do we do this? We are looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. He despised the shame. He is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. If we are going to see God work, we must be focused on His Son. Now today, in the 21st century, we don't have an Ark of the Covenant to follow, but we do have what it represented. We do have what it contained. Because inside the Ark of the Covenant were a copy of the Ten Commandments. Inside the ark was God's word. And guess what? We have God's word right here in the Bible. We don't need the ark because we have the book. The ark also represented God's presence with his people. And if we have a relationship with Jesus Christ, then God lives in us through the Holy Spirit. We have his word. We have his presence. We can move forward into what he has for us next. In verse 7, we're also told, the Lord says to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, so that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. God used this event to exalt and make a great leader out of Joshua. And note who's making the decision here. Joshua didn't decide, I'm going to be next. It was God's decision, not Joshua's. We see something very similar happen when King Solomon takes the throne after the death of his father, King David. We read in 2 Chronicles that Solomon, the son of David, established himself in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. We'll see this again in chapter 4, that God does this for Joshua. In chapter 3, verse 9, Joshua invites the people to draw near, come here, listen to, pay attention to the Word of God. He's telling the people to diligently, passionately listen to, pursue what God says. God's miraculous action is going to show the Israelites and show every nation around them that the one true God is with His people. He will give them their promised land. He alone is Lord over all the earth. In between there, we have a funny note in verse 12. It says, Now therefore take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. Just kind of leaves it sit there. But that will pick up again in chapter 4. And then finally, in our text, the crossing actually happens. I love some of the language to describe it. I'm going to read verses 13 and then 15 and 16 from chapter 3. 13 says, when the soles of the feet 
of the priest bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, when the soles of their feet rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Verse 15 says, As soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priest bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water, then 16 says, The waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away, a place called Adam. The city is beside Zarethan. Those flowing down to the salt sea were completely cut off, and the people were able to pass over. As soon as their feet touched, I kind of like how this picture does it, as soon as their feet touched, the water was cut off. It stopped. And we're told that it was raising up in a heap. It was like it was dammed up. The water was coming into an invisible wall. I, the image is very striking. I can almost see that the water is building. It's getting higher and higher as more of it's coming down, but it's not flowing to them. And not only that, we're told that the ground beneath them was dry. Now, that doesn't mean that it was powder dry, but it was firm ground. When the Israelites were crossing the river, they weren't sloshing through mud. They were walking on dry ground. And they had all the riverbeds south of the ark to cross over. Hundreds of years after that, this event, along with the Red Sea, is celebrated in Psalm 114. We read, When Israel went out from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of a strange language, Judah became his sanctuary, Israel his dominion. Here's what happened. The sea looked and it fled from them. The Jordan River turned back. And the psalmist asks a question to the sea and the river. He says, What ails you, O sea, that you flee? O Jordan, that you turn back? What are you afraid of, these people? No. Tremble, O earth, at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the God of Jacob. This chapter shows us the one true God at work. He alone could do this, and he alone should be our focus. So chapter 3 talked about God at work. We spent more time talking about it last week, but now let's move on to chapter 4. It's going to retell this story, but it's going to change our focus. The main point of chapter 4 is that when God works, we who are his people, we are to remember. We remember. I'm going to read verses 1 through 5 and then 8 through 18 in chapter 4. When all the nation finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man. Command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly. Bring them over with you. Lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. Joshua said to them, pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, that this may be a sign among you. In verse eight, the people of the Lord did just as Joshua commanded. They took up 12 stones out of the midst of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel, just as the Lord told Joshua. They carried them over with them to the place where they lodged. They laid them down there. And we're also told Joshua set up 12 stones in the midst, in the middle of the Jordan, in the place where the feet of the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. For the priest bearing the Ark stood in the midst of the Jordan, 
until everything was finished that the Lord commanded Joshua to tell the people according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua. The people passed over in haste, and when all the people had finished passing over, then the ark of the Lord and the priest passed over before the people. The sons of Reuben, the sons of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh, they passed over armed before the people of Israel, as Moses had told them. About 40,000 ready for war passed over before the Lord for battle to the plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. They stood in awe of him, just as they stood in awe of Moses all the days of his life. And the Lord said to Joshua, command the priest bearing the ark of the testimony to come up out of the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priest, come up out of the Jordan. And when the priest bearing the ark of the covenant of the Lord came up from the midst of the Jordan, here's that language we saw in chapter 3, and the soles of the priest's feet were lifted up on dry ground. Their foot comes out of the river, then the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and overflowed their banks as before. Throughout Scripture, we see this happen, that God gives us visible reminders of truth. Our passage is one such reminder. It's interesting that this passage, chapter 3 and 4, it's one of the first places that the people of Israel are called a nation in the Old Testament. By passing through the river, they had become a new people. They're now committed to God. They're passionate about following Him, following His purposes. Well, we read what happened. The Lord told Joshua to choose 12 men. These 12 men were to go into the river, and they were to each pick up a stone. The stone would represent the 12 tribes, the 12 groups that make up the people of Israel. Now, some translations obscure this, but we're told in verse 9 that it's most likely there's two memorials that are made by Joshua and the 12 appointed men. They grab stones and take them across the river for one, and then Joshua leaves a pile of 12 stones in the middle of the river for the other. So when the waters would return, that monument, it would completely disappear. Though perhaps when the waters were low during the, the warmer months, the top of it could be seen. Nevertheless, we are told that this pile of stones was still there when this book was written. It was true. You could go there. You could verify it. Now, it's not really certain what this underwater monument meant, what what its purpose was. Perhaps it was a monument to the Israelites who did not make it across the Jordan. Or maybe it was a hidden testimony to the secret work of God on behalf of his people. In either case, our text focuses on the monument that is seen, the one they build in the new land, in their new home. The twelve stones are carried from the Jordan. They're picked up from where the priest's feet had stood. So every Israelite, remember, they're a half mile away. Every Israelite could see these twelve men going over to where the priests were, picking up these stones from the bottom of the river and carrying them over to the other side. Every Israelite would remember, hey, those stones, they were at the bottom of the river. They're set up at the Israelites' new camp at Gilgal, which was only about two miles from Jericho the place of their first battle to come. Our text tells us the people are united. They're faithful in this effort. The people pass over the river. Then the priest also finished crossing. And I like who we see here. Who's leading the charge of the people? 40,000 warriors from the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh. 
If you were here two, three weeks ago, we talked about these tribes. They had their home on the other side of the river, but they were still faithful to fight with their countrymen. They lead the way into the battle. And their stones are included in the monument. There's one for each of the 12 tribes. Those three tribes had their stones in this monument as well. Verse 14 is a fulfillment of God's promise in chapter 3. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel. They stood in all of him, just as they had stood in all of Moses all the days of his life. What happened to Moses after the Red Sea has now happened to Joshua. In Exodus 14.31, we see that this is after they crossed the Red Sea. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. They believed in the Lord, and they believed in his servant, Moses. In both cases, here and in our text, the people fear, they revere God, and they trust in what he is doing through his appointed leaders and through his faithful people. Once they make it to the other side, they assemble this monument of 12 stones that together represent a united people, a united nation of Israel. But why? Why is this happening? Pastor John, why would God tell them to pick up some rocks and carry them across a river? Well, he wanted them to remember what happened on this day. The stones testify to God's power, his faithfulness to his people. This message would apply to all those who crossed, and it would apply to all their descendants who would come after them. One writer I read about this named Robert F. Youngblood, he put it this way. He said, remembering is a way for future generations to participate in the great acts that God had done for Israel. Their children could not pass through the Jordan River again. It it happened once. But they could remember their ancestors who did pass through the river. If they do not set up this monument of 12 stones, well, they run a risk of forgetting what God has done for them. In the book of the Bible that's before this, it's the book of Deuteronomy. And Moses warns the people that it's possible that this can happen. Here's what Moses said, when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, the land he swore to Abraham, Isaac, to Jacob, the land he swore to give you, when he brings you into this land, there will be great and good cities that you did not build. There will be houses full of all good things that you did not fill. There will be cisterns, wells that you did not dig. There'll be vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you get there, when you eat them, when you are full, then take care, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And unfortunately, that is exactly what happened to the people of Israel. The first generation remembered what God did. They had seen what he did in bringing them across the Jordan. The second generation heard about God's actions, but the following generations forgot. They became complacent. They forgot to share the story that these monuments were supposed to tell. In Psalm 78, we read this. They did not keep God's covenant, his agreement with them. They refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders 
that he had shown them. A monument is only useful if people remember why it is there. As I was thinking about that, I I was reminded of a habit, and it's a habit I think I picked up from my father. If, If something comes to my mind, an important thought, or I think of something, I realize I need to do something, but in the moment, I don't have time to write it down, I don't have time to set a reminder of my phone, it's just crossed my, my mind in one quick moment, I'll sometimes put something in the middle of the floor, what room I'm in. It might be a piece of paper, might be a pen, might be a book, I'll just throw it down there, so that the hope is when I have some time, I'll see that misplaced item and I'll go, that's not supposed to be in the middle of the floor. Why is that there? And I'll remember what I was supposed to do. And I tell you, 95% of the time, this is very helpful. It, it works. I see that. I'm like, okay, yeah, that's not supposed to be there. And I remember why I put it there. But, but sometimes I do forget why I put that thing out of place. And I'll look at this book or this piece of paper on the floor and I'll go, that's not supposed to be there. And I'll think about it and I'll think about it. But eventually, if nothing comes, I'll have to go, oh, well, and I'll put it away and and not remember why that was there. And so in that moment, my little makeshift monument that I build has failed. I guess it's really my memory failing, but (laughs) the monument's not reminding me what I'm supposed to remember. And this is the same thing that happens to the Israelites. They had these monuments, these stone pillars, but they forgot what they meant. When God does something in our lives, we should take action to remember it, whether we write it down in a journal or or set something aside and know that this will remind me that God did this in this situation. But even if we do that, we need to stay diligent, because even if we make some kind of monument, we can very easily forget its purpose. It's one thing for something to happen to us and say, oh, wow, that was great. I can't believe God did that. I'm going to remember that. But it's another thing to actually do it. This theme of remembering shows up throughout Scripture. In fact, there are several New Testament authors who continue talking about it. In the book of 2 Peter, the Apostle Peter gives a list of godly character traits, but then he says this. He lists these traits, things that should be happening in their lives, and he says, therefore, I intend to always remind you of these qualities. Though you know them, you know these things, you are established in the truth you have, But still, I think it's right, as long as I am in this body, to stir you up by way of reminder, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. This is the Apostle Peter. He had seen the miracles Jesus had done. He had seen a lot of Jesus' works firsthand, but he thought the most important thing that he could do for these people was to remind these Christians of what they already knew. He wasn't interested in teaching them new things as much as he cared about reminding them of the truths that they already knew that they should be living by. And that's why the Apostle Paul, too, he consistently reminds his readers to go back to Scripture, go back to God's Word. Perhaps most famously in 2 Timothy 3.16, when he says all Scripture is God-breathed, It is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. The Bible is where we must go to be reminded 
of what God has done for us. It's where we must go to be reminded of what we must do moving forward. It's our memory book of God's actions on our behalf. One way that we remember the work of God is by reading it every day, by thinking deeply about its truths, and by applying them to our lives. Now, taking action to doing something to remember the past, that's not something unique to the Bible. We see it in our world as well. Uh, Just a few days ago, we celebrated the 4th of July. It's a day for those of us who are Americans to remember, to celebrate the signing of the Declaration of Independence, the founding of our nation. And so the fourth day in July is a holiday every year in the U.S. You always have work off. It's always a holiday. It's supposed to inspire us to pause, to remember our history. Kind of like those 12 stones in Joshua's monument that represent the unity of these 12 tribes into the one nation of Israel, we can look at these 13 stripes on the U.S. flag, and they remind us of the 13 original colonies that joined together to form one United States. But you know, there's a better way for us to connect this kind of remembering we see in the book of Joshua to something we do in our lives today. Because we who are God's people, if we know him today, we have been brought to God through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we remember that when we practice what he has told us to do, when we have baptisms, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, like we did last Sunday. Last week, I read this passage, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three and 25, as we had the Lord's Supper. Jesus, on the same night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Why are we doing this? We do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant, the new agreement with God in my blood. This do, drink it as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Do you see that there? Celebrating the Lord's Supper is how Scripture tells us to remember Jesus. Now, there's nothing wrong with doing other things to remember Jesus. We can have some type of picture, maybe a work of art, maybe we have a cross jewelry or a picture of a cross, or even dramas or movies about Jesus. There's there's nothing wrong with that. But the way we are told to remember him in the Bible is by practicing communion. And in the same way, we follow Jesus in obedience by baptism. The going under the water, the coming up again, that's a picture of how we die to our old life of selfishness and sin. And we rise to a new life of true peace and true joy in the presence of Jesus Christ. God saved the Israelites by bringing them through the Jordan River. Through faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, God saves his people today. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ways for us to remember how God has worked in our lives to save us. Now, when I was reading chapter 4, I skipped a couple verses. Those last few verses highlight how we're not just to remember God's work. We're not just to see it and like, oh yeah, I remember God did that, and then keep it to ourselves. Instead, when God works, we're to remember and we are to tell others. We're to tell others. We're going to read verses 6 and 7, and then 19 through the end of the chapter. Verse 6, this monument is said to be a sign 
among you, so that when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. Verse 19, the people came up out of the Jordan on the 10th day of the first month. They encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those 12 stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, just as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. In these verses, the stones are said to be a sign among the people. And the purpose of a sign is to point to something else. The purpose of these stone memorials was not to look at them and go, wow, that is a really nice stack of stones. I love the way they come together and form such a lovely shape. The purpose of the stones was for an opportunity to share what God did in order to bring his people into the promised land. The stones are a sign. They point to a greater truth. And they're supposed to have a personal meaning for every Israelite. In this passage, the children not only ask, what do these stones mean? But in verse 6, mine is, what do these stones mean to you? What do they mean to you? Do they have an impact in your life? The answer God's people are supposed to give to their children's questions is that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the Lord. That's a really good phrase. It's a passive statement. The waters didn't choose to stop flowing themselves. There was something or someone that cut them off so that the people could cross. This is a message of good news, a message that all of God's people should be able to identify with. God cut off the waters of the Jordan so that the Israelites would be delivered safely across the river. In the same way, he cut off his son so that sinners today can be restored to a right relationship with him. In both cases, the Lord is the one doing that work. Verse 19 tells us the people went over the river on the 10th day of the first month. That's just before the Feast of Passover, and we'll talk a little bit about that next week, but it's another day for the people to remember. And then in the very last few verses of the chapter, Joshua tells them again what the purpose of these stones are. He reminds them how they are to respond to their children's questions. And he connects what just happened, God led them across the Jordan, to the same thing he did for the people crossing the Red Sea during the Exodus. Now, if you remember the last time we were looking in Joshua in chapter 2, Rahab and the people of Jericho, these pagan people, they had heard what God did for the Israelites at the Red Sea. Even though it was 40 years before, they heard what God did for the people. And now 
The same kind of thing has just happened again. So how are they going to respond to this news? Well, in verse 24, Joshua hopes they will realize that the Lord is mighty and powerful. And he hopes that the Israelites will be led to fear and worship God for all of their days and forever. These commands about telling others, telling children, telling those who come after what has happened, it's not the only time they appear in Scripture here. In fact, before the Israelites even left slavery in Egypt, they were told that every year they were to sacrifice a young lamb to honor how the Lord killed the firstborn of the Egyptians, but he passed over, he spared their homes. Moses has a very interesting comment. It will sound very similar to us. When your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our homes. That means the celebration of Passover it was not only a time to remember God's work, it was an occasion to tell the next generation, this is what God did. This is how he saved his people from slavery. In the same way, the Israelites were told they were to sacrifice the firstborn of their animals. They were to pay a redemption price for the firstborn of their children. In Exodus 13, Moses explains this. Again, this looks very similar. When in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man, the firstborn of animals. Therefore, my son, my child, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. There's a ritual going on here. There's a ritual of sacrifice. There's, they have to pay a price. There's a ritual of redemption. But these things are meaningless if they're not explained to the children, to those who come after, to those on the outside. Otherwise, it just looks like killing an animal and paying some money. But Moses tells them, you must tell the next generation why you are doing these things. And that's a convicting truth for us. I thought about that. Because we need to know what we're doing, and we need to know why we do what we do here in the church. We need to know why we believe what we believe. And then we should be able to explain those beliefs, explain those practices to anyone who asks. We shouldn't assume people come in and understand, oh yeah, you're doing this, obviously. If someone does not have a background in faith, or if they're young, we need to explain to them, this is why we do things this way. We have to tell others that everything we do as Christians, the way we live, is a grateful response to what God has done for us. In Deuteronomy 6, Moses put it this way, when your son asks you in the time to come, what is the meaning of these testimonies, these, these statutes, these rules that the Lord our God has commanded you? Why do we have all these rules? Why do we obey them? Then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. The Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. God's instructions, his rules, his book, our obedience to it, that's our proper response to the one who has saved us. We're not doing it to earn favor with God. We're doing it because we're so grateful for what he has done to save us. 
So God's people today, we are to share about what God does for us. We're to share about what he is doing in our lives. We don't need to overcomplicate sharing this good news. We're simply called to tell others, this is what God has done for me. If you are a genuine Christian, you have the ability to tell someone about God's work on your behalf. You can talk about how I was a sinner. I was separated from God. I did not have a relationship with him. You can talk about how Christ came. He lived the perfect life I couldn't live. He died on my behalf. And you can talk about how I turned away from my sin and my rebellion. I turned toward God in faith and trust. And do you know what I found? I found salvation. I found the joy of a relationship with God. Sharing that message, that is our task. That is our calling in this earth. In Joshua's words in verse 24, he wants all the peoples of the earth to hear about the Lord's might. All should sing, as the psalmist does in Psalm 89, 13, Lord, you have a mighty arm, strong is your hand, high your right hand. But friends, if you do not share about what God has done for you, what what he is doing in your life, if you don't tell others about this powerful, mighty God, Well, then how will your friends hear about him? How will your relatives hear what God has done? How will your acquaintances, your neighbors, discover this truth? Every man, woman, and child should be inspired to pray along with Moses in this passage from Deuteronomy. Oh, Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant the greatness of your mighty hand. For what other God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours. When God works, we're called to remember, and we're called to tell others about what he has done. Now, if you're here and he's not your God, well, you've heard a lot about him today, a lot of what he has done and who he is, and you can know him the same way all his people do. You can have a true relationship with him. I'd be happy to tell you about it, or or any genuine follower follower of Christ who's here, would love to tell you about God's work on your behalf and how you can have a personal relationship with him, know him, be in his presence. But now, at this time, I think this is an opportunity for every Christian to praise God, not only for the work he did to save the Israelites, but for the work that he did to save each of us. Brothers and sisters, let's respond in praise because he alone is worthy.